Hello, and welcome to episode four of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring. This week, we'll be talking to Don Wineland, a correspondent who covers banking for the Financial Times in Beijing. I met Don in 2012 or somewhere around there when he was hired to be a staff writer at the magazine I was working at called China Economic Review in Shanghai. I made a lot of friends working at that small and scrappy magazine. This was definitely a period where I took myself perhaps a bit too seriously and was, quote, faking it till I made it. Despite that, and at one point becoming Don's overbearing boss when I became the editor of China Economic Review, Don and I became friends and have stayed in touch over the years. I remember well Don coming to parties at my apartment in Shanghai and his once-a-week routine of getting kebabs and beer with anyone who wanted to join. Don went on to work in Hong Kong and eventually joined the Financial Times, making good on the knowledge of China's economy and financial system he began to accrue back then. In this interview, we actually don't talk all that much about the financial system. We were running a bit long so only did a deep dive into a major story he did on North Korean shipping. Don is a relative latecomer to journalism compared to my first three guests, and I find the twists and turns that got him into the industry and to a major publication like the Financial Times make a compelling story. Before we dive headlong into that, I wanted to say at the top of the episode, if you listen to even part of it and like it, please leave a five-star rating, and if you have time, write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, without further ado, here's my guest, Don Wyland. First, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I thought maybe we could just start by setting the scene a little bit. If you can tell me where you are, you know, what time is it, what kind of week you've had at work, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Um so it's, uh, it's nearly 10 o'clock in the morning in Beijing, and it's Saturday. Yesterday was, was tomb sweeping day. Do you remember that, that holiday? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So I had the day off. What happened over the past week? I don't know. You know, it's just, it's all a blur. I'm just trying to think. I wrote some stories about uh, Belt and Road investment, and um, I did an econ analysis uh, about... I think it was based on like PMI data or something like that. So yeah, pretty straightforward week. Um, somewhat exhausting, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. I imagine that's yeah to be expected with you just moving there. Uh, some long days to start out. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess, I, I guess I should say that I, I, uh, I just moved here. As you know, I've been here for about, I think a month and a half now. So I, I moved from, from Hong Kong where I was for about, uh, five years. Um, you're you're living. I, I thought I, I've seen on uh, your wife's Instagram that you guys are you found a hutong house to live. So you're in the hutongs right near Forbidden City. Is that right? Yes. Um, against the uh, the best advice of all my friends up here, um, we we moved into a hutong. Um, everyone's been kicked out of hutongs, and they said don't move into a hutong. But um, we we moved into a hutong. And it's it's really nice um, for non Chinese speakers. Hutongs are these older neighborhoods. They're usually one or two story houses. Um, so our our place is a nice renovated two story kind of traditional house. Gotcha. Yeah. No. I I mean, while I I would caution you on hutongs, like I lived in at least four hutongs, and I got kicked out of some of them, <laughs> and I just I just kept doing it. I mean. I feel like if you're going to yeah. live in Beijing, you should like go all in on it, you know. Um, totally. Um, and, you know, the, the thing for us was is that, you know, we'd been in Hong Kong for five years living in a shoebox. And 
you know, we wanted to do something really different and have like a, a house feel. So living here, you know, like we have a courtyard and we, we walk directly out of our front door into the open, open air, um, which is very different from living in, you know, most places in Asia where you're walking out into a dark hallway or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's a good, um, it's a good feeling. Okay. Well, uh, so let, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where were you born? Um, I was born in Sacramento, California. And you grew up there? Um, I lived there until I was about 12, I think. And then I moved to Northern Nevada. And so what was your childhood like growing up in those two places? I would say fairly straightforward for a, um, for a West Coast American California, Sacramento is a very suburban place. Like I, I, I grew up in a relatively rural area of, of Sacramento, and then moving to Nevada, we lived in some pretty kind of rural areas as well. Of course, the you know the natural environment between Sacramento and Nevada is is very different. Sacramento is very lush. Nevada is very that's kind of like a desert, and the altitude is much much higher. You know, I picture you as coming from kind of high desert. Like yes, outdoorsy type places, but I'm not sure if that's the correct image. <laughs> no, that I mean for Nevada, that's uh, all of northern Nevada, or lots of it is is high desert, and it's. Uh, I mean, I think it's a it's a beautiful place. You know, I spent a lot of time camping as a kid in in California, and you know, also as a as a teenager in Nevada. Yeah, Nevada's you know a very outdoorsy type type of place. I, I went to your wedding, so I met your parents. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I obviously know. Famously, your mom is a justice of the peace because she did your your guy's marriage certificate or the the legal part of it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But right. what did your parents do when you were growing up? What was the situation there? So my mom worked as a she worked in in like the medical industry for a while, doing a lot of like I think like clerical work. My dad was an accountant. It sounds like your parents uh, didn't have much influence on your course going into journalism. What, did that start when you were a kid, your interest in journalism, or when did you first take an interest in it? Yeah, it's a, a difficult question to answer. I, I mean, I guess as a kid, my parents read to me a lot. Like, we spent a lot of time reading books. So I think I had kind of like a, an early interest in, in reading, although I I was and still am kind of a, a uh, I, I read a bit slower than I think like your average person, but yeah, I didn't really have much of a, of a, of an understanding or I don't think I understood anything about journalism as a kid. I had a, um, a, a great grandmother who was a journalist, I think during world war one. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've learned a lot more about her in recent years, but I, I just remember hearing that as a kid, like our, our great grandmother was, was, was a journalist. I didn't, I don't think I really knew, you know, what journalism was outside of, you know, watching a couple movies about it until I, you know, was, was a bit older. So I think my, my real interest in journalism kind of came out of the interest of, of traveling. So growing up, my, my grandmother who lived next door to us would have people from around the world, uh, come and stay at her house. She was part of some kind of program and I don't know what the name of the program was, but she would, was it like young people or they were usually prof- professionals from, developing countries. That's kind of how I remember it. Um, like I think maybe it was like the minister of finance from some African country stayed one time. So she she would have them. (laughs) Yeah. She would have them over 
and they would stay with her for a couple nights. It was it was some kind of international program that she was part of, and this is in like the 1980s before like couch surfing or whatever. Right. So whenever she would have somebody over, we lived next door. We would walk up to her house. And I had this atlas, and I'd bring that up there, and then the guy or the the, the woman would would uh, find where he was from on this atlas, and like he would usually sign it. So I had this atlas full of people's signatures, um, and that kind of got me interested from as a little kid in traveling and geography and kind of like understanding the rest of the world. So I think any interest that I had in in journalism probably came out of out of the idea of traveling around and, and writing about things like. I, I did like to write as a kid. What would you write as a kid? Well, now that you mention it, as a kid, me and the other neighborhood kids would, um, we would actually write like newspaper stories and stuff like that. You know, I remember one time like a, uh, a, a stack of wood collapsed at my grandpa's house. And like, we wrote a news story about that, like trying to figure out like what happened. Um, <laughs> so basically what I'm doing now and what I'm do what I did back then is, is almost exactly the same. <laughs> um, I mean, breaking news, you know, man, Hey, you know, like, uh, in a small neighborhood, stacks of wood don't collapse every day, but yeah. So I would, like, I wrote stuff like, like that. Again, we had no understanding of what journalism was or anything. I mean, probably just like any normal eight or nine year old. I did as a kid write, uh, poetry as well. And I was, I was quite commercial about it. I, I wrote a book of poetry <laughs> and then I tried to, I tried to sell it around my neighborhood. So I've been trying to make money out of, out of this business for, uh, for decades, Jake. That's hilarious. So what would you do with like the, you try to sell the poetry, but the, the news article, would you just like read it to people who would listen or what would you do with it? I think we would walk around the neighborhood and try to get people to buy our news stories as well. <laughs> uh, and and I, I should say like the neighborhood that I lived in was... Um, a lot of my relatives lived on this large plot of land. So I, I think my, my great grandmother, the, the, this famed um, journalist bought a large plot of land. And then as her family expanded, she kind of, she gave plots of it to her uh, children and grandchildren. So we had lots of relatives kind of living in this area and other people that weren't related to us. So that's, this is in Sacramento. This is in Sacramento. Yeah. Okay. And why did your folks move to, uh, or your mom moved to Nevada? Well, so when I was, 12 years old, my parents got divorced and then my mom and, uh, my, so I have a, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. We moved to, uh, Northern Nevada after the divorce. Just for, I mean, your mom didn't move there intending to become a justice of the peace, I imagine. <clears throat> yeah, she didn't, uh, she did not intend on becoming the uh, justice of the peace of a small Nevada county when we when we moved there. No, the way that she she got into this was when we moved to Nevada. She began working for the uh, the DA's office, so she became very familiar with the all of these legal codes. And so she lives in a in a small county in Nevada called Story County. I think justices of the peace in the past have not been that great and they haven't really understood a lot of the, the legal code. As you might know, these positions are elected. So she really got a, a very good understanding of, of the legal system working for the district attorney's office and then basically ran on, you know, somebody that would actually be able to kind of like carry out the, the law. And yeah, she was, um, she, she just ran unopposed in the last election. So she's, she's, uh, doing it for another six years. Oh, well, well, okay. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, there was some journalism in there way back, maybe in your genes, maybe, you know, you were writing articles and trying to sell them. Um, Story County is quite, quite the name. 
<laughs> yeah. It's spelled with, it, with an E, though. Uh, it's E-Y on the end. Uh, okay. Well, still. Still. Pretty on the nose. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you graduate from high school, and what happens from there? Yeah, so um, I graduate from uh, Virginia City High School, I think in... I think it was 2001 and I start going to school to university at the University of Nevada Reno which is um, quite close to where my my family lives now yeah when I started university I, I basically had absolutely no idea what I was doing you know like I I, I started as a as a, uh, a psychology major I think I had read a couple psychology books or something like that in high school and I just thought it was cool the, the high school that I went to I guess I should say it was it was a really interesting place to go to high school um, now, now that I think back on it I, I can appreciate it a bit more because it's just you know it's so incredibly different from most people's experiences um, when I was there there was about a hundred 50 kids at the high school. It's in a, in a very rural county in Nevada. And it didn't really do a very good job of, of, you know, preparing me for, to go to college. You know, there was really, there was, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion. Just because it was so small? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think our graduating class was 23 people and I think five went to, to college out of that, um, including me. So it just, I mean, the way that the school was structured, just what it's not set up to send people to college. Like that's just kind of how I, how I feel about it. Some, you know, and some of my friends have gone on from there to do great things. My class was, maybe I could say they were um, underachievers. <laughs> and when I started college, yeah, I really had no idea what I was doing. And I spent a year and a half there just doing undergraduate courses, kind of getting credits out of the way. And during the the third semester, a friend of mine met a Chinese professor. He's a, a, a man from Shandong province who was teaching history at the university. And this guy was starting up his, his own company, which was sending university kids over to, um, to to his hometown to teach English. So my stepbrother, this other guy, and myself, we ended up going to moving to China in 2003 to teach for, uh, we were all signed up for six months. And that's kind of how my, my time in Asia got started. And yeah, we, and was this a situation where you just like, you heard about this and you just like, you were down to take off and just go thousands of miles away? Pretty much. Um, I mean, I, I usually tell people, you know, it was, the move was kind of on a whim, you know, school was not that interesting. You know, I was getting the psychology degree but had, you know, really no idea how I was going to apply that in, in the real world. And yeah, I had always had this interest in traveling overseas. I'd only been abroad once before. Um, and this just seemed like, you know, this was a, a ticket to, to travel. And, you know, I'd been looking at all these, these study abroad programs, um, for a while, you know, tr thinking about how I could do this, but you know, those things cost a lot of money. And this guy comes along and is like, I will pay you to go overseas. So yeah, we, we signed up pretty fast. And do your parents were all good with this? Um, I think my mom was pretty worried, but yeah, I mean, they've always been incredibly supportive of, of me working abroad. I mean, they, they kind of view it as a, you know, it's a big adventure. You know, here I am 16 years later, still doing it. There's no other explanation besides the fact that I must you know, love this. So yeah, they were pretty supportive from, from the start. So you, you take this opportunity to go abroad, go to China, teach English. W where were you going exactly in China? Yeah. So when we, when we first came over in early 2000, 
2003, we ended up in Shandong province, which is, I mean, it's still considered northern China, but it's south of Beijing. It's probably about halfway between Beijing and uh, Shanghai. For six months, we lived in this little tiny town. I would call it like, a, you know, in, in China, they have all these, um, they call the biggest cities first tier cities and, and uh, so forth. And this must have been like a sixth or a seventh tier city or something like that. It was it was almost a village. So, yeah, we were very much in, in rural China for uh, for six months. And yeah, we tried to learn Chinese while we were there. I've, I've since been back to that place many times. I, I can't understand anything that the people there say. Um, <laughs> so it probably wasn't the best. Um, now that I, I do speak fluent Chinese, uh, yeah, I, I can't understand anything that they say. So not not the best place. Because they speak in a dialect. Yeah, I mean they speak in in you know Shandong speak, um, which is. You know, to me, it's just as hard as any other dialect in China. Right. So you like it and uh, you you go back after that to the U.S. or do you stay longer or, or what happens after this? Yeah, basically months? over the next uh, probably six or seven years, I lived between various places in China and then uh, the U.S. And I just go back and forth during that period of time. When I go back to the U.S., I, you know, I, I would do usually like a semester at, at university and then I'd come back to China. And the, the times in China that I, the, the length of the period of time in China w- would get longer and longer every time I'd go. So the first time I was, I was in China, I stayed for a year, which was, of course, six months longer than I originally planned to stay. I went back to the U.S. for for a semester. Then I think I came back and stayed for two years in China. Uh, There was little planning that went into most steps of these uh, these trips. So I would, (laughs) I mean, I think one time I I came to China with, you know, I probably had like a hundred bucks in my U.S. bank account, but I had a you know like a a job lined up. You know, there, there was no clear planning. It was all very irresponsible as well. <laughs> so, yeah, and I did that for quite a while. Within two years of moving over, I enrolled in a university and began studying Chinese kind of in a, in a formal manner. Um, and I did that for, for quite a while as well. So you worked and do you study at the same time? Worked, studied. I began picking up like translation jobs. Yeah, I would I would act as, as a translator at, at various events. So, yeah, that that's kind of what I did for quite a while. When uh, so you uh, you would go back to university in the US University of Reno, you said, right? Reno, yeah, uh, UNR, University of Nevada Reno, yeah. And you you drop in for 6 months. Wasn't that extremely strange? Oh yeah. No, it was totally bizarre. Like thinking about it now, it was pretty difficult because, you know, the the first time that I came back, everybody else, you know, all my friends that I started school with, everyone had moved along in their lives and, you know, things move pretty fast when you're in university, so really Relationships had changed and, you know, some people had moved elsewhere. Some people had graduated. I was kind of just disconnected from, from a lot of the people that, that I was originally good friends with. And I think, you know, after, of course, moving to China was, you know, quite extreme and it was somewhat life-changing. So when I came back, you know, I was quite into all this Chinese stuff. And I think my friends, you know, just wanted me to shut up about China. <clears throat> it was it was really interesting. I mean, but by the second time that I had come back, almost all of my friends had left uh, university. You know, they'd graduated and they'd moved elsewhere. So I came back and basically didn't know anybody in in Reno. And yeah, you'd go through these weird cycles. Like I think that time I came back and everyone was wearing like trucker hats. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the next time that I came back, 
it was like this, uh, like hipster culture had taken off. So everyone was riding like fixie bikes and were, they were all wearing bandanas on their heads. So like I kind of went through these weird cycles where, you know, like I, I was catching cross sections of, of fads and American culture and was never really able to kind of adopt it or tap into it. Yeah. Instead of creeping up on you, it kind of, you see the huge jumps because you haven't been around. I mean, I do remember because when I first went to China, I went for a semester and then I extended for a full academic year. And then I also stayed for the summer. I, I just remember coming back and like hearing all this music and really liking it and it already having kind of come and gone though. So like, right. I like kind of missed the period period where it was cool to enjoy these certain songs and things like that. And it, it was just a strange feeling. Yes, exactly. So your reaction to China, I mean, for me, I, I went and it like blew my mind. You know, I kept extending. And then when I did finally come back, it wasn't too long before it was kind of like the show Lost, where it was like, we have to go back to the island. We have to like... <laughs> You know, China's where it's at. I've got to go back. I mean, I imagine it was kind of like that with you and maybe perhaps that people, other people had moved on. It caused you also to, I don't know, maybe double down on the China thing. Well, yeah, that's exactly, I mean, that that's exactly how it was for me. When I, when I moved back the first time, when I moved back to the U.S., the only thing that I was thinking about was coming back to China. <clears throat> the two friends that I'd come, come to China with were still in China. And, you know, I, I moved back to the U.S. and then automatically started making plans to to, uh, to, to go back to China. So yeah, pretty much for, for from 2003 until 2008, it was just all about China. Somewhere in there, I think maybe it was in 2005, I met a, uh, a Korean girl. We started dating and I began making trips to Korea. So uh, I think the summer of 2006, I moved to Korea for the summer. Um, then I, I kept doing that. The next summer, I went to Myanmar for half the summer and then to Korea for the rest of the summer. And then 2008, I moved to Korea and stayed there for a year. I began moving around the region and, and living in, in other places, but I was it was all still very kind of China-centric. Okay, yeah, because I was wondering about that because that's kind of where your official biography, <laughs> according to LinkedIn, picks up okay, yeah. <laughs> in uh, in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. But I assume so. You after you all these back and forths, you finally finish university and you graduate, right? Yeah. So um, I had a really um, spectacularly crappy end to uh, to university. So as I said, I moved to Korea to Seoul in 2008 and was there for the financial crisis. I was getting paid in, in won and uh, when the financial crisis mm -hmm. happened, the won fell by like 30%. So like I was, I was saving up to go back to the U S. Um, so I needed to change that money mm -hmm. into dollars. Um, so that, that really sucked. So I spent, I spent a year there studying Korean and also teaching. And in 2009, I moved back to, <clears throat> to Reno to finish my degree. I had about a year and a half to two years left of classes. And my girlfriend at the time, this Korean woman, moved back with me. I guess maybe one thing I should say before I talk about moving back to the U.S. that time. Um, in 2007, I was in Hong Kong. And I was hanging out at a bar with a friend of a friend who was a journalist at, I think it was... Uh, VOA, uh, Voice of America. And mm -hmm. before that time, I really didn't have much interest in, in 
journalism or becoming a journalist. And, and she was she was telling me about what she did, and it just kind of clicked suddenly. Like I, I, I was a bit of a news junkie, you know. Like I consumed a lot of news. I did I did a lot of my own writing, <clears throat> and it just suddenly it just kind of clicked. Like this is what I should be doing. So I decided at that point that I would go back to the U.S. and finish my degree in in journalism. So when I moved back in 2008, my oh, because you hadn't yeah. been studying journalism to that. No, point. no, no. I had never taken a journalism class. I still didn't really have like I obviously obviously I, I knew what journalism was from a very superficial perspective, but you know I didn't know how to I didn't know the rules of writing a news story or anything like that. So I decided when I moved back to the U.S. I would I would um, I would start taking journalism courses. So that's what I did when I went back in 2008. Within a so you know this is the probably the third or fourth time that I'm moving back to the U.S. I don't know anybody at my university anymore, and I moved back with my. Uh, my girlfriend. And um, within two months or so, she leaves me. She's just fed up with me. And uh, not not too long after that, she she left the U.S. and moved to, um, to Colombia because she had an interest in studying Spanish. Huh. So basically, I'm kind of like just all alone in Reno, Nevada, feeling, feeling sorry for myself and trying to finish my degree. And yeah, I start taking journalism classes. I finish my degree eventually in 2000... Um, See, I guess it was 2011 <clears throat> is is when I I graduated finally. So about 10 years after I started, and part of the way through the last semester of my bachelor degree, I was looking for jobs just like everybody else because you know it's difficult to get a journalism job, and I was just emailing people in Asia because I wanted to go back to Asia as a journalist. <clears throat> and I happened mm-hmm. to email a gentleman at the Phnom Penh Post, which is a newspaper in, in Cambodia, or it was a newspaper. And this guy got back to me really fast. Yeah, I, I basically pitched myself as somebody that could cover the influx of Chinese investment and Chinese business into Cambodia because I'd, you know, I'd been reading about Cambodia and it was pretty clear there was a there was a kind of a, a Chinese investment boom there. I should say, I, man, yeah. yeah, editors have eaten eaten this Chinese influx of investment thing for for decade for at least a decade, I guess. Like, still, editors love this. Hey, thing. I, I've based my whole career around it, and and I, I've ridden this this uh, this wave for as long as I I can. <laughs> yeah, I should say, I it's not not a bad way to go. Yeah, man. no, definitely. I I didn't have any experience in business journalism. So I kind of bluffed a little bit, as I'm sure we all do. Did you have any experience in journalism at all or just classes? Uh, well, like, had classes, you done internships? I, I had been writing for the um, newspaper at the university, okay. um, which which I should say is probably that, I mean, it was one of the toughest jobs I've ever had. Like, it was probably the most stressful, you know, it's just a bunch of kids trying to, you know, put out like something that resembles uh, an act of journalism and you know it was just very difficult very stressful you know there's you know sure. of course uh, under resourced I guess it's kind of experienced that for the rest of my career but right. it was it was quite useful I mean I think you know writing for a, a local paper is interesting and <clears throat> anybody that's getting into journalism should do it so yeah I didn't didn't really have very much experience I had written for some online blogs before like some blogs on on Chinese social media and stuff like that so I'm not sure if you've ever heard of global voices online vaguely i had been writing for them kind of translating and and decoding chatter on on 
Chinese social media around, you know, like human rights and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, not, not a lot of experience. And so, yeah, so I pitch, I pitch myself as a, as, as somebody that can cover Chinese investment in Cambodia to this, uh, this news editor at the Phnom Penh post. And, um, they, yeah, he, he passed my, my email on to the editor in chief and the editor in chief basically asked me, you know, when, when can you come? Oh, wow. So yeah, that was the, the first job that I had in journalism. And I, I moved to Cambodia in uh, May of 2011. And you'd never been there before? Never been there, no. Oh, wow. And uh, how long were you there for? I was there for a year and uh, three months. Okay. And which, uh, that, that sounds like a short period of time, but, um, for anybody living in Cambodia, it's, it's, uh, an eternity. Does any, I don't want to dwell too much on each, uh, stage because I know you've worked several different places, but anything in particular stick out from Cambodia that you took away from that experience? <laughs> I mean, we, I could just talk for ages on, on Cambodia. It was a really interesting environment to work in because there was a lot of just kind of young, somewhat inexperienced, but also like very hungry journalists working <clears throat> at this newspaper, the Phnom Penh Post. And I mean, I, I really cherish the, the experience because I don't think I'll ever have anything like that ever again, given that I was trying to, to cover Chinese investment, I was able to do things like, you know, I could just get on a motorcycle and literally drive through the the jungle in search of, you know, like illegal Chinese gold mines and stuff like that. So the the type of work that I was able to do was just, you know, it's just amazing. There's very little oversight. Like many of the papers that I've worked for, it's very much reporter driven. Mm -hmm. And another interesting aspect of it was that Phnom Penh was a kind of a two newspaper town. So there was the Phnom Penh Post Mm -hmm. and also the, um, the Cambodia Daily, these two competing newspapers. And, you know, it's pretty amazing to kind of be facing off against one other newspaper in, in a very small country. You really have to focus on, you know, what your competition is doing. And yeah, it was, it was an incredible place to work. I I should say very, you know, it's very unfortunate, but both the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post have essentially been shut down. The the Cambodia Daily has been, has officially been uh, closed. I believe the Phnom Penh Post has been taken over by the government. So there's no more. Oh, wow. Yeah, basically it's the, it's the end of, of independent journalism in Cambodia. It's a very, very sad thing. Maybe, you know, like at some point if you, if we, I'm not sure how much you want to touch on this during this conversation, but, um, it's, it's an interesting thing to see newspapers like that disappear because, you know, without that stepping stone for me, like I, there's no way that I would have been able to kind of progress through the journalism world. And in Asia, just like in the U S you know, all these small papers are disappearing. So there's, there's really very little way to kind of work your way up the ladder anymore. Right. Right. No, I definitely feel like that. There's kind of an intermediary step that is kind of missing now, like to use, I guess, a baseball metaphor. There aren't all these different levels of leagues. There's just like amateur baseball and major leagues and where, well, you know, if you don't have the middle, you know, how do you get from one to the other? I mean, what, so were the, are the, have the papers been shuttered more for political reasons or more? More for economic reasons, because obviously, you know, 
newspapers are having trouble financially all over. Well, yeah, I guess that's the difference between what's going on in the U.S. and you know what's going on in, in Asia. Both those newspapers were shut for political reasons. So the Cambodia Daily, which I think never turned a profit during its you know 20 years in business. And I, sh- I should also say that both these newspapers are very, you know, completely free of political inf- influence. Um, we were able to, to write just like any other newspaper around the world. There was a lot of editorial integrity at, at both of these papers. So, yeah, the, the Daily was shut down after it was given like a one point six million dollar tax bill. I think this was two years ago. I kind of remember. Yeah, this yeah. Thing. You probably saw it on Twitter. There's no way that this newspaper that had essentially never made anything, any profit over the past 20 years to, to foot this tax bill. The, the Phnom Penh Post was taken over by a, it was bought by a, a Malaysian businessman, but I believe it was very quickly transferred to the government. So the Malaysian businessman that bought this, that bought the Phnom Penh Post, like he had in the past been doing um, PR work for the, the Cambodian government. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I actually can't say who owns the Phnom Penh Post now, but I'm, I'm feel pretty comfortable saying that it's been neutralized. Sure. In the end, you you might have been talking a big game about something you had no experience in, but it sounds like you did deliver more or less what you had promised and, you know, found some stories on Chinese activity in Cambodia. Yeah, sure. Like it was, um, you know, there was there was tons of stuff going on there. Um, and it's only, you know, since since then, it's only picked up, uh, you know, the, the Chinese investment in, in Cambodia. So I, I wrote lots of stories about Chinese companies building everything from like wig factories to uh to gold mines and uh and you know i covered a lot of other stuff as well but yeah it was a a a, a incredible place to to work so this is the part where our our paths cross in i had been working for the magazine china economic review in shanghai and your resume comes in, you know, a whole big batch of resumes. And we, we'd always get tons of applications, but actually, you know, it was fairly easy to weed it down to the people we would interview because it was who's actually had journalism experience and had these full-time jobs and reported on business in Asia. And I mean, it, there weren't that many. I mean, there were a lot of people with like maybe an internship, maybe freelance, but I mean, I do remember your resume jumped out and we were definitely going to interview you. What, what do you remember of that interview process? I'm curious. You, you probably remember better than me. Well, uh, I, I, I certainly remember the phone call. Um, and I, I believe you were on, you were on the call with um, Anna Swanson. Right. I mean, I took a writing test at one point. Yeah, we probably made it sound way more professional <laughs> from all the hoops we made you jump through. Yes, I think so. So, okay, you you get the job, you move to Shanghai, and we work together. And I believe I must have been the staff writer, and you were, you know, working some other magazines. And it was a a very clear progression and very high attrition. So, like, you know, I'd seen this process happen where, you know, you went from running this quarterly – and like a monthly insert to being the staff writer to being the editor was kind of the clear progression. And right. I mean, that job, I mean, it, it was strange. We worked for a really bizarre publisher who was a big personality and, you know, a legion of Chinese, mostly women, working sales jobs and database. And I, I mean, I don't even know. I was fully clear on what everybody did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And, uh, I mean, Graham would always have these various business schemes. He'd be running on the side of, um, on the side of CER. Maybe CER was the side business, if we're going to be honest. That, that's what, that, I was going to say that. Yeah, I think, I think CER was the side hustle. Um, <laughs> and there was all this other stuff going on that was the, the real, the real thing. I mean, China Economic Review was like, I was having a ton of fun in, in Shanghai, just like living and like having a job and, you know, hanging out with my friends. And I mean, I kind of can't believe like how much I partied and still, we still put out a very good product and we still like, I don't know, I think we, we work pretty hard too. Yeah. Yeah. I have some, uh, some banker friends here in China who actually read China Economic Review at the time. And, you know, I've, I've kind of told them what the process was of putting that together. And they, they were surprised and almost shocked that, you know, it was a bunch of 20-something, 20-somethings kind of putting this uh, magazine together. And there's there's really just, there's three of us when it when I joined. Like three full-time, like, writer-editors, and then there was, like, a half-time researcher, and then, like, some designers, and that was kind of kind of it, and then the sales staff. That was it, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, moving moving to, um, moving from, from Phnom Penh to Shanghai was, uh, it was an interesting process. I actually, I mean, you're talking about partying and stuff in, in Shanghai, and, and um, you know, know, I certainly got my dose of that, but really it was, it was kind of a breath of fresh air for me. And, uh, it was almost an escape from, from Phnom Penh because, you know, Phnom Penh's notorious for being just kind of this crazy party scene. And I, I, you know, the journalists that lived there or lived there at the time, most people partied pretty hard. So moving up to, to, to Shanghai really gave me an opportunity to, to relax. Yeah. I mean, just you guys, all of you who passed through Cambodia, your sheer knowledge of the drug lean is like an example of like what? And I, I know you didn't even do it, but just the fact how much everybody yeah. seems to know about what is a fairly obscure drug is like pretty hilarious. Right. For the record, I, I did not do lean, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Phnom Penh is, uh, of course, it's you know there's lots of drugs there, lots of people, lots of foreigners doing drugs, and people just kind of you know drinking themselves into oblivion. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't need too much of that. Shanghai seemed pretty tame to me. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, I, I mean, we weren't doing all sorts of drugs and stuff. But like, I'm, I'm sure no, Cambodia no, no. Blew, blew us out of the water. So, yeah, China Economic Review. Uh, so, yeah, it is kind of amazing. We were just a bunch of 20-somethings. I would say I feel like this is a period where I took myself very seriously, like way more seriously than I took myself now. And I'm, I'm actually very curious <laughs> because I eventually became the editor and was was your boss, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, we were all a bunch of 20-somethings who didn't know what they were doing. But I actually am like, ooh, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, I look back and I'm like, I wonder if I was, like, an extremely overbearing boss. I feel kind of, like, embarrassed about it now. Uh, no, you know, I, when I think about China Economic Review um, and the editorial process there, <clears throat> so, you know, because this is a podcast about journalism, I, I guess I should say that I was writing kind of daily news stories in, in Phnom Penh. I mean, that was, you know, it was just daily grind type stuff and trying to put out bigger kind of investigative stories when, when I could. And then suddenly, you know, moving to, to Shanghai, it was a huge shift in gears. And suddenly, like, we're actually thinking about, you know, what we're saying. You know, there's there's this this idea that 
you know, stories have uh, theses and that we're trying to inform people about stuff. So it was, it was a, 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 or inform people about bigger ideas about what's going on in, in China. So that, that was a big kind of shift for me. And thinking about how, how you and Anna ran the, um, ran China Economic Review and how, how you were as editors, you know, I'm, I'm still really grateful because I don't think I've had another situation where, where so much thought has gone into the, the, the editorial process. I, I, I guess I should, I mean, Probably working for the FT now. There's, there's of course, lots of thought that goes into the editorial process at the FT. Um, but be- before I got to the FT, I don't think, and and even after when I was working for um, South China Morning Post, there really wasn't, there was not a lot of thought going into sure. what was being put out there. And suddenly at, at China Economic Review, like you guys were really, you know, you were scrutinizing the ideas that that I was putting into stories. So it was, it was a really good process. Yes, you you were an overbearing editor. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, but it was it was still a really good you know it was a really good process uh, for me personally because it you know we we thought about what we were writing, um, and we you know were able to kind of uh, yeah we spent a lot of time thinking about what we were saying. Do I I do want to hear if you have any Graham Earnshaw stories because I I feel like I'm going to interview various people who have gone through CR at various points and he's just such a huge character I wish I had documented them more at the time but does anything stick out to you about him I remember so after you had left CR was was always in the process of looking for new re- revenue streams right. <clears throat> and Graham had a um, had a great idea about basically becoming um, uh, we. Weak in China. Week in China is a. It's it's written out of Hong Kong. It's a it's a, a weekly publication, and it's sponsored by HSBC. So, oh yeah, he'd um, already started talking a little this, bit about this before I left. Yeah, so there's kind of this week in China model that he was going after, and he got somewhere with a another very very large commercial bank, global commercial bank. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave out the name. Um, but he, and I I remember him, you know, storming through the office. Uh, he seemed elated throughout the day, you know, on, on the phone with these guys from this bank. I I think he had an old contact at this bank that he was talking with and this guy was passing through town and, you know, he was sounded like he was really, really close to, um, to selling this thing. And I I remember him on the phone at one point saying, you know, why, why don't you send me, send me a car? And um, I'll just go to wherever you are and we can discuss. And that was kind of his, like, you know, as you said, he's a big character, very, very self-important. And, you know, the idea of some, you know, like a a global bank kind of, you know, sending someone a car, (laughs) uh, like, you know, a bank sending me a car to pick me up and then take me somewhere else. That's kind of, you know, it's a, especially if you're trying to sell something to a bank. I don't know. It just strikes me as being kind of funny. Um, (laughs) And then I think the next day, so it, it sounded like the way that this was going, like this was, this was the future of China economic review. We're going to become another week in China. The next day we get in and I ask the, you know, I ask the editor, you know, oh, so like, are we done? Like, are we all, you know, going to get raises? And, and, and Oliver, the, uh, the, the editor that joined after, after you left just goes, oh no, 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 that didn't go anywhere. Like they had no intention of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of doing that with us. So it was, it was just kind of this, like, maybe it says something kind of about like, like, Graham's um, high aspirations, but sometimes his his inability to to deliver on those things. 
Um, if, if I had a, a, a more time to think about it, I'm sure I could think of other crazy stories. But um, yeah, he uh, he did not cease to to entertain. But anyway, yeah, I, I now struggle to come up with my one like quintessential Graham story. I mean, he was obviously you know a huge character, but I mean uh, he managed to keep things going for a surprisingly long time. That. I feel like somebody approaching it more rationally. <laughs> I don't know. We always thought that maybe it could have been run better, but I think you kind of had to turn a blind eye to some of the business issues to, to keep it going at some points. Right. And just not to belabor the point, but um, I mean, China Economic Review is basically defunct now. Right. And when I think about the number of journalists in, in China and in Asia that have passed through China Economic Review, you know, very successful journalists that have gone on to do great things. Um, I mean, you know, there must be there must be 10 people that are active journalists right now, you know, some working with you, um, many that work with me at the right. FT and also the New York Times. You have to wonder, would, would we all have gotten to, you know, would we have moved on in, in the world of journalism if it wasn't for China Economic Review? So that's kind of the question that I'm throwing out there with, you know, like the disappearance of these two newspapers in Cambodia, the the end of China Economic Review as a place that employs serious journalists. I, I just don't see how people can kind of work their way up. Anymore. Yeah, I, I really don't understand either how you would begin to do that. I guess we're lucky we got up the ladder before it was kind of pulled up. Well, there, you know, there's another, I'm not sure how, how much you see this. <clears throat> Hopefully you don't see it. There's this other model that, that seems to be popular. At, at other publications, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to name any publications, but um, there's kind of this like internship or like what would you call it? Like um, like the last standing intern type model, where publications will bring on interns and they keep them as interns for for long periods of time, or put them on like uh, you know terrible contracts that pay almost nothing. And if you're if you're able to to withstand that for sometimes years <laughs> You, you stand a chance of being brought onto these publications. And and I, I've seen this uh, several times. There's a specific publication that I'm thinking about. And the thing that's not that's not very fair about that is not everybody can afford to be the right. last standing yeah. intern, if you know what I mean. Like, some people just cannot, you know, like, it's impossible to live in Hong Kong on a very low wage and get by for two years, uh, making almost nothing. But if you're, if you're able to do that, you know, you stand stand a chance of being brought on as kind of a full-time journalist. So I don't know. To me, like, it's it, that that model is not a model that I think is going to produce the best and the brightest journalists. Like, it's it's um, it's not really based on merit. It's based on how long you can survive. Um, and some people have means of surviving longer than others. Yeah, no, it's definitely gets back to the whole... People talk about this with, like, three-month unpaid internships, like it favors, you know, the wealthy. And, you know, when it gets to being years. I mean, it's that's insanity. I'm assuming you can't say which publication you're talking about on the record. Uh, you know, I think it'd be unfair to, to point out that publication, but I, because I think it, it's pretty widespread sure. in, in many places. Like I, I can say about the, like about the FT, I think the FT only, but we don't do unpaid internships. So it's kind of like, which is, it's a good model 
because if you're going to hire somebody to do something, like you, you should at least be, they should serve a purpose that is that is good enough to, to be paid for, if that, if that makes sense. Right. It's an economic, there's an economic decision that's going in behind this. So, so China Economic Review, I leave, I'd been hanging around waiting for um, our coworker, Anna, to leave because I, I saw the progression and I saw that if she left, I would become editor. And that kind of happened in a format, a not ideal format of you won't actually be in charge of a magazine because it will only be online. It'll be shut down. And I kind of saw how things were going and I knew like I need an exit strategy. So I, you know, went to go study Chinese and like prepare for, um, you know, a higher level job. Hopefully was my aim. I mean, when around the time I left, I mean, did you already see the writing on the wall? Was it already like, I got to get out of here? Or what took you to the South China Morning Post, your next job? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I was certainly looking to, to leave when, whenever possible. I mean, I, I enjoyed the, the pace at China Economic Review and the ability to kind of sit back and write stories that were, you know, at times very nerdy and didn't really, really didn't have that wide of an audience. Only somebody that's going to pick up the China Economic Review would be interested in a story about like wealth management products funding, you know, certain types of real estate projects or something like that, you know. And so I was learning a lot and wasn't in a in a huge hurry to leave. But I certainly, you know, obviously when you when Anna left, then you left, I was definitely looking to to make an escape. And you know, I I didn't take the same. I, I diverged from that tra- trajectory of becoming the the editor in chief. And I, I was very happy to you know to to bring some other poor soul. <laughs> um, into the position of dealing with with Graham, um, I, I just you know I, I saw you know what happened with with Anna, and then you know your constant battles with him. Like I just didn't want to. I, I wanted to keep writing, um, and I didn't want to spend all my time kind of you know in these battles. Um, but uh, I mean, I had a, a journalism professor a long time ago who said you know editors are basically just good journalists that get tricked into into becoming managers. So, yeah, I, I I was quite happy to keep writing. Yeah, but you know, within a over the next I think 10 months after after you left, um I eventually did get a uh, a job at the South China Morning Post and uh, I moved to Hong Kong. And this starts a lengthy Hong Kong interlude for you, I believe. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't even call it an interlude, but at the start, and this has happened to various friends of mine, you know, I was kind of like counting on certain people to come back to the mainland because as I've said on previous interviews, like it's a constant cycle of people leaving. So you rarely get people coming back in. So I was like, oh, well, Don Don will be back. And, uh, but it turned into how many years in Hong Kong? Nearly five years. So I was there for about about four and a half and some change. But the, yeah, the idea was, so when I, when I joined SCMP, the idea was to, I was, I was actually hired as the um, banking correspondent, the China, I believe my title was the China banking correspondent. And the idea was that I'd go to Hong Kong and I would get a visa to go back to China. And then I would, I would be based in, uh, in Shanghai and I would, you know, that would be my base and I would write about China banking, but that didn't happen. I moved to Hong 
Hong Kong, and w- within about six months, it became very clear that SCMP would not be able to get me a, a journalist visa to go back. They tried, mm-hmm. but it just didn't. It just did not happen. They didn't. It's kind of. It's. It's actually. It's. It's quite interesting, and it says something about Hong Kong's standing in, in China. So to get a journalist visa in China, you have to be a foreign publication, and right. SCMP, of course, is based in Hong Kong, and from the Chinese authorities' perspective, at least at that time, was not considered a foreign publication. It's considered a domestic news publication. Mm -hmm. So what that meant is that they had to go through other channels to get a journalist visa. They'd done it in the past, but it had been a while since they had done it again for another for a foreigner. And that channel, which I believe was through the uh, the Hong Kong-China liaison office, that channel just didn't, it, it broke down, it didn't work. This was during the, the Occupy Central period. So the, um, oh, okay. Occupy Central kicked off in, in the second half of 2014. It was like Occupy Wall Street, but Central's the business district in Hong Kong, so people were occupying that district. Yes. And so this was, you know, the biggest political event in Hong Kong since the probably since the late 60s. And that probably had something to do with throwing off this um, this visa process. But anyways, yeah, so I was marooned in, in Hong Kong and I continued to work for SCMP for, I, I worked there for about a year and a uh, couple months, like maybe cl- close to a year and a half. And uh, how, how the, so how the FT thing happened in the Financial Times? So at, at SCMP, I was kind of thrown back into one of these situations where there's really not a lot of, there, there wasn't a lot of thought going into the writing. It was, it was clear from the beginning that it was a bit of a, a grind. And, you know, for anybody that's familiar with the history of the, of the SCMP, um, which is, you you know, it's it's one of Asia's oldest newspapers. It's for decades, it's been very, very highly respected. You know, as a, as a source of, of good information on on China, it kind of it, it began a decline. I think in the 2000s, and by the time that I arrived in 2014, I would say it was kind of at a, a low point in its in its history. Evidenced by so it, it's a it was a listed company at the time. Its stock had been frozen, so um, you couldn't trade in its stock. Uh, mm-hmm. That says anything about the, the state of the company. It was owned by the Kwok family, which is you know a very large kind of Hong Kong slash Singapore based uh, tycoon family. Very pro-China because they own a lot of hotels in China. So it's it, the SCMP had kind of lost a lot of its luster by that point. And in late 2015, there were rumors that uh, Jack Ma of Alibaba fame was going to buy the paper. And he did. And really, that's been that's been quite good for the, the newspaper. He's injected a bunch of resources into it. Some people say that it's become kind of an arm of the, the Chinese state. I don't really believe that so much. I think they just have better paid journalists now. <laughs> people people say that after Jack Ma bought SCMP, SCMP became very pro-China. My argument has been that it's, you know, since the 90s when the Quoks bought it, it's always been pro-China. Uh, okay. So there hasn't been too much of a change. Um, I ended up resigning on the day that the deal with um, Jack Ma was announced. Wow, quite the timing. Of course, of course, this had nothing to do with, with uh, I resigned during the day and then it was, it was announced later the, in the evening. Nothing to do with uh, the fact that Jack Ma bought it. I had already you know, uh, signed up with the FT. So yeah, I mean, the thing with the FT, you know, they, I guess within the kind of the China banking 
and finance space, there's, you know, there's not, this is how I'd like to think about it. Um, there's not that many people that, you know, that speak Chinese and kind of understand this area. So, you know, I interviewed with the FT and signed up relatively quickly. Cool. And uh, I mean, all of these were kind of breaks, I guess, but was that your big break, would you say? Uh, absolutely. Um, did you, did you, uh, was there ever a point where you thought the wheels might come off? Like, was there ever a point in one of these jumps, either non-pen to CR, CR to SCMP, SCMP to FT, where you thought, you know, you might not make it, where things might not work out? Well, I should say, like, the wheels have always been feeling like they're, they're, they're wobbling <laughs> my entire life. I don't, you know, thinking back, it's, it's hard to kind of put myself back into, into those periods of times. I mean, I mean, you know, like, anywhere that I've worked, there's always been hard times where I'm just kind of like, Jesus, this, you know... Is this really what I want to be doing? There were times at China Economic Review at South China Morning Post where I was, you know, yeah, I, I thought about other other things. The, the problem for me is, um, and I'd like to get this on the record, is it would be very like I I find it very tough to consider the the possibility of of going into public relations. Like it just I, I don't think it suits me. Right. Yeah. So um, you know that's the na- that's the natural turn for for journalists getting out of journalism. And unfortunately for me, I just you know maybe things will change, but but it just seems so hard uh, for me to, um, to to do something like that. Uh, I agree 100%. I just, I mean, I obviously have a great, like, life with my wife and, like, all that. But, like, I need to have, I don't know, some serious project on the side to, to get through doing PR. I just don't think I could handle it. That's the thing. I mean, like, right now, certainly after joining the FT, you can ask my wife about this and she will confirm work it just dominates my life. You know, like I'm, I'm always just kind of thinking about stories and about stuff to write. So like the idea of the same level of kind of intensity, yeah. but not, you know, not, not storytelling, not, you know, just kind of trying to tell a story, you know, like this, this story that, that, um, some institution or some bank wants to be told. It just, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with public relations, but it just, I just don't think it suits me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the intensity for sure. I mean, there's never a down moment. I remember talking to my friends who are like accountants and like sometimes they would have nothing to do and I would be like literally almost every, you know, second of work I'm doing something. Maybe it's not the most productive thing I could be doing, but there's always more shit to do as a journalist. It never ends really. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe the best way to attack the your time at the FT is to get to those questions about if you can take a story that you're proud of and just kind of walk me through start to finish, how you came up with it, how you executed it. Um, okay. I mean, one that I was thinking of that got a bit of attention, it's actually not my my core beat, but it was something that I put a lot of thought into uh-huh. and took a while to report out, was um, a story about how Hong Kong is this haven for shipping companies that, that do business with North Korea. Oh. <clears throat> and yeah, it, the story got a bit of attention. A lot of people kind of followed up on it and did... Did, uh, similar stories after this one came out, but it's quite easy to, to, to uh, find in public records that there's a lot of uh, North Korean, or I, sh- I shouldn't say a lot, but there are some North Korean flagged ships. Uh-huh. The company that that manages the boat is based in Hong Kong, uh-huh. and you know, so working with a couple different databases of public records, you know, there's a um, if, if you get access and access is free in in, in many cases <clears throat> for the simplest data. Um, you can get marine traffic data very easily to track the movement of ships. 
Uh-huh. There's a shipping registry called Equisys that tells you who owns a boat, where the boat was flagged, the boat's history, all of this stuff. And then there's the Hong Kong public record system, um, Icarus, that gives you all the you know the ownership documents. So basically, what I did was <clears throat> I found a handful of North Korean flagged ships. Mm-hmm. And and uh, are you familiar with the concept of, of flags of convenience? I assume. Yeah, I mean they they you know put it in a certain jurisdiction. It's kind of like you know basing your company in the Cayman Islands or something like that, right? That's right. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> just like offshoring, uh, corporate offshoring, but with with boats. So if you you know if if your boat is based in if if you buy a flag from. Some South Pacific island. It's likely that that South Pacific island doesn't really have very high standards uh, for the laws governing that boat. Um, and so this happens a lot. I should say that it's not particularly convenient to get a North Korean flagship. <laughs> I can't imagine. But that. so w- w- what I did was I put all these records together, and I, I found I, I, t- I tried to demonstrate how Hong Kong was being used as a base for companies that were continuing to do uh, business with North Korea. Uh-huh. And Hong Kong is one of the only places in the world. Uh, there, there are a couple others, but there's not too many places where a someone can manage a ship and own a ship that has a North Korean flag. But Hong Kong continues to be one of those places. Uh-huh. And um, basically, what I wanted to do was document how you know as sanctions were kicking in how North Korea was continuing to to run a, sh- a shipping business. This is, I mean, it's, it's important for a couple different reasons. Often what, what ships visiting North Korean ports are bringing into North Korea are not what they claim to be bringing in. So they might say they're bringing in, I don't know, coal or something. They could be bringing in some kind of dual use material that could be used, used in weapons production. And of course, there's a lot of legitimate business that's just trying to keep the North Korean economy alive and people and North Koreans alive as well. So I wasn't really trying to put blame on on anybody, but I was trying to demonstrate, you know, at this time when sanctions are very high, how a nation continues to do trade and how it continues to often possibly bring in USD or spend USD that it has. A lot of this would not be possible without Hong Kong as a base for for managing these boats. So it was very interesting. Um, and, you know, this we I took this down to the level of tracking down the people that uh-huh. that run some of these businesses. So in, in the corporate records, you can find, you know, uh, people that own lots of lots of these boats or manage these boats. Um, and we found somebody in, in North Northern China that owned or managed boats, and one of my colleagues went and tracked her down and talked with her. So yeah, it was uh, an interesting story to work on. It took quite a while, and yeah, it seemed to have a bit of an impact. <clears throat> I think some of the diplomatic missions in, in Hong Kong were quite interested in understanding some of this information. It's brought some scrutiny, at least to the to the regulators in Hong Kong that you know continue to allow these businesses to operate. So the the guy who managed the shipping business, he he talked to you guys? What did he just say, you know, business is business and that was his explanation or what? No, so when when these people register their businesses in Hong Kong, they have to put down an address for where they are based. Mm-hmm. And often this is just their residential address. So we I found this address in in a corporate document and I passed it on to one of my colleagues. Her name is uh, Yuan Yang. She's based here in Beijing. And uh, Yuan was on a trip to northern China at the time. So I had her stop by this address 
Uh-huh. And it may have been the the parents of the person that was running this this company, and she was able to get the person's phone number. And then this woman that was running the company agreed to meet with my colleague. I think they met in a McDonald's, <laughs> and they just discussed the business. You know, I think the. If you go back and look at the story, I'm pretty sure the word from this woman was that it's getting harder and harder to do the business. You know, like sanctions are really having an impact on things. I mean, from her perspective, she wasn't doing anything wrong. She was just shipping tradable goods into into North Korea. So, yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. Yeah, great story. And, uh, yeah, it sounds like it got a big reaction. I mean, anything to do with North Korea, just because things operate in such shady ways that are so ill understood, like, you know, anytime you can uncover something that sheds some light on how things function. I mean, people are super interested. Yeah, I think so. And I imagine social media reaction was big and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's a big story. Could you uh, then explain a little bit about how you got from Hong Kong to Beijing, where you just moved? Sure. So... I'd been covering M&A, private equity, corporate finance for the FT in Hong Kong for about three years. And most of what I was doing, I would say probably like 80 to 90% of what I was writing about was focused on China. So, you know, I had a discussion with my boss and we decided there was an opening in Beijing for for a new reporter and yeah, just kind of open the discussion on whether or not this would be the best place for me to do my job. And yeah, here I am. I think, you know, I can do a lot more kind of financial sector coverage from here. It's much easier, I think, you know, when, when you're on the ground and you're able to see what's going on as compared with, with Hong Kong. So that was the main idea behind the move. Okay. So your beat will continue to be banking and finance, just a little bit closer to the heart of it. Right. There, so there's in the past, I had more of a focus on cross-border investment. I'll, I'll still be doing some of that, but there's more of a focus now on the banking system, the financial services companies. Uh, so that's kind of probably half of what I'll be doing while I'm here. I sure, think. yeah. Uh, my understanding is outbound investment still is very controlled. I was talking to the interviewing the Chinese ambassador here the other day, and my coworker covers macro and knows nothing about China. Was like, oh, ask him if we're not going to see just FDI but if there's going to be more like portfolio investment in like stocks and bonds and stuff like that from China. And the Chinese ambassador was just like, no, (laughs) like didn't really explain it. He was just like, no. And I mean, I assume it's because of all the capital controls that they don't want companies, you know, plowing money into foreign stock exchanges. Yeah. I mean, it's a big problem for China, though. I mean, China's, you know, it's the world's second biggest economy. Like, if it can't diversify outside of China, like, there's too much, like, concentration risk on the domestic market, the domestic stock market, the domestic property market. It's it's the same stuff we were seeing back when we were at China Economic Review, but it's, like, on steroids now in a way. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So uh, I think that about does it on uh, the biographical section. Should we move into the lightning round? Sure. Cool. What is usually the first thing you check up when you wake up in the morning and grab your computer or your phone? I automatically look at my email. Are you mostly looking at press releases, emails from your boss, emails from sources? Mm, I mean, hopefully I don't have more than 50 press releases in my email box. Uh, Yeah, it's really just kind of, you know, stuff that is happening as New New York shuts down. You know, there might be still a little bit of stuff going on from the London day. I mean, although... 
usually London is asleep when I'm waking up, but it's, you know, just the hangover. There's email chains that were alive when I was going to bed that are still going when I wake up. Lots of stress and anxiety-inducing activity. (laughs) Okay. And what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day that is not the Financial Times? I read the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis. What is a publication you read or listen to or watch uh, purely for fun? Yeah, I guess I could say the New Yorker purely for fun, although, I mean, it's still reading New Yorker articles. You can still learn something and apply some of some of the what you're getting from those stories to everyday work. Cool. And then what's the best article, piece, or whatever you want <laughs> it to be that you've read or listened to recently? Who um, let me think about that, and uh, maybe something will come to me as we continue talking. Okay, sure. Yeah, it usually takes a little thought. Are there any particular subjects you read into specifically that aren't related to your job? Yeah, I really like reading about Central Asian history. So great game-related history books, um, you know, the history of Russia and Central Asia or Great Britain in Central Asia, kind of the clash between those two uh, societies uh, in places like Afghanistan and, uh, you know, that area is quite interesting to me. I have a a growing uh, library of books around that topic. Sure. Just out of curiosity, if you were recommending one book about that to somebody, a place to start out, what would it be? Um, Probably The Great Game by uh, Peter Hopkirk. It's quite good. Cool. Is Twitter important to you? Uh, Yes, it is. And uh, would you say it's more important to you for sending out tweets or for reading other people's? Definitely for reading. I'm not incredibly loud on on Twitter. I'm a bit shy on social media, to be honest, but use Twitter every day just to kind of see what people are talking about. Sure. Let's see. Do you use any other social media and how? Um, I like Instagram. Instagram is quite simple. You know, you just post a photo. You don't have to say anything if you don't want. So it's a good way to kind of see where my friends are, where they're traveling, what they're what they're eating. And it just seems a, a lot less... There's not as many ideas around it as there are with, with Facebook. Like Facebook, of course, has been politicized. Um, and it's a kind of a, a tool for spreading political ideology and especially, you know, kind of like in the, of course, in the run-up to the 2016 election, I, I just found myself using Facebook less and less. Instagram, although it's owned by Facebook, really doesn't have that that idea around it. It's <clears throat> it's just much more straightforward and simple. Sure. And all, all this stuff is still blocked in China? Um, it's spotty, but... For the most part, it's blocked, yeah. I never really got in the habit of using these things really heavily on a smartphone because that kind of happened when the smartphone end of it kind of happened when I was living in China. I got my first smartphone and all that, and it was just a pain in the ass to get on VPNs all the time. But I wonder if now, since you're coming from Hong Kong, where I assume presumably you've gotten used to all these things, if you're just on your VPN like 24-7 or how you work that. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. I mean, like you, you know, like I was in China for, you know, when when Facebook launched and and social media really kind of came about. So I, I didn't really have much of a habit of using it until, yeah, living elsewhere, living back 
in the U.S. and and in Hong Kong. And yeah, it's it's a pain in the ass uh, here in in China right now. I have a VPN running all the time. I have three VPNs on my phone (laughs) just in case. So yeah, it's, um, it's not easy. Okay, so now we've got a series of yes or no questions. Take them how you will. The first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Um, I would say yes, given his, you know, very important contribution to to journalism, you know, everything around Snowden and the way, you know, that was reported. It's pretty important. He's a very controversial figure. Uh, there's a great New Yorker article that came out sometime over the past couple months that really follows him. Um, and you get a, what I would think would be a pretty good sense of kind of like who he is. And yeah, he makes some pretty controversial calls at times. But I would still have to say yes, given kind of... Kind of, you know, his contribution to the industry. In terms of uh, the Snowden stuff primarily? or Yeah. I mean, of course, there was a reason why, you know, Snowden contacted him and, and those other journalists. And that's because he, I think he already had a, you know, a pretty good reputation in, in reporting sensitive things like that. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. And then Vice Media, yes or no? Mm, I'd say no. Why, if you want to expand? Well, I, I don't find myself reading it very often. It's not, I don't know, like it represents some kind of culture within journalism and within America that like, I just don't quite understand. Like there's, it's like this level of edginess that it doesn't really connect with me. And it's kind of like, you know, like, I mean, I like to write and report you know, like things that don't necessarily need to have kind of like shock value to them. And I'm not saying that all vice vice journalism is like that, but there, but it has a reputation for that. And yeah, it's just, you know, with all the stuff out there, you know, like um, there's plenty of other stuff to read. Sure. And then uh, WikiLeaks, yes or no? WikiLeaks, I would say yes. It's quite clear that there's there's a lot going on that our governments don't want us to know about. And I think th- there's a, there's an argument that governments need to be able to do this, you know, their work without having their internal communications leaked. Um, and I, I understand that argument, but I also think that you know. If the, government is breaking the law and there's a, you know, a way for us to know more about that. I mean, that's, you know, how, how can, how can you say that that's a, a bad thing kind of, you know, for the development of democracies? So I would say yes, with, with caveats, like I think they've made, WikiLeaks has made bad calls before for sure. Right. Uh, timing the release of certain information <laughs> to certain events. Of course, the, um, the most recent stuff around the, uh, the pres- the 2016 presidential campaign, obviously that, uh, um, clearly was was a bad bad call um, and you know stuff before that the blanket release of certain documents containing people's names and stuff like that I think they could have better curated that information. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Um, I think I would say Michael Lewis. I mean, he's just kind of, you know, within the financial reporting world, he's, uh, you know, he's kind of a, a, a God-like figure. You know, he just writes incredibly engaging books. A lot of them have been turned into movies. I'm sure, you know, he's probably one of the, the wealthiest journalists out there. But, I mean, you know, I just think what what he does is incredibly interesting. And, you know, he gets to travel around. And, yeah, it seems like he's lived a, a very interesting life. I love Michael Lewis. I've read several of his books. Let's see. What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? Hmm. I got into journalism quite late. So as I explained before, you know, I moved to China and I was, you know, studying Chinese and I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, if I had kind of, you know, as a 
19-year-old if I had come to China and I, I had better understood journalism and kind of had a, you know, a, a way into it at that time, um, that would have been, that'd been great. But, you know, it was, wasn't until many years later that I really got into the industry and I, yeah, be, would have been great to start earlier. Sure. Sure. And then uh, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Are you familiar with the the book News of a Kidnapping? No. What's that? By Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So Marquez is, is well known for his um, fiction, what is it, 100 Years of, of Solitude. And, and right. I, I actually haven't read any of his, his fiction all the way through. And I, I, I'd like to. I just haven't had time. They're they're pretty big tomes. But uh, News of a Kidnapping is an account of several journalists and other people that are kidnapped by a drug cartel in Colombia. It's just an amazing, you know, like, it's kind of like, it reads like a novel, but it is, in, in fact, a uh, nonfiction account of, of this this period of time in, in Colombia. And um, yeah, I would highly recommend it. Cool. I've not heard of it. I'll have to check it out. And then uh, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I like hiking and I like being outdoors. And I also like traveling in, in Central Asia. So I think I would have some type of a job where I lead people on treks or something, you know, like basically like a Central Asian mountain guide, I think uh, sounds appealing to me. I'm sure there aren't many foreigners living in Central Asia doing that. I could be wrong, though. I've never been there. I don't think there's that many people in general living in Central Asia, <laughs> which is, makes it pretty pretty appealing. True. And then just to go back to that question, uh, what's the best piece you've read recently or thing you've listened to or watched journalism related? Yeah. Okay. So I, I did think of one. There was a, a long form story about a Rio Tinto executive who was locked up in China. I don't remember exactly uh, how long he was, he was locked up in China for. It may have been something like eight years. He was a person of Chinese descent from Australia and... There's an excellent story about him being released and just kind of, you know, the case where you have kind of the Chinese government facing off against putting pressure on this, you know, this huge natural resources or mining company. And this person named Stern Hu, who was basically, it's unclear, you know, if he broke the law, exactly what he, you know, what crimes he committed, you know, if he was corrupt. But certainly he, he's regarded as kind of collateral damage in this clash between the Chinese state and one of the world's biggest mining companies. So yeah, it's a really good uh, read on Bloomberg. Okay, on Bloomberg, cool. Well, I'll uh, try to get a link to that and put it up when we post uh, this episode. Okay. I think that's all the questions then. Uh, do you feel good about it? Yeah, feels good. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on. <laughs> my, my pleasure, Jake. Thank, thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Don Wineland, a correspondent in Beijing for the Financial Times. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to go above and beyond, it would be a huge help if you also write a positive review. So far, we only have one. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. Please, 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 if you know a journalist or a journalism student or someone interested in how the media works, recommend the podcast to a friend. Personal recommendations go the furthest. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Lastly, please look for our next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 14th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Thank you for listening.